Wine Stories, a podcast to discover the world of wine by Etienne Pommier. Hello, everybody. Today, for this 14th episode of the first season, we will talk about Bordeaux fine wines and a document at the heart of the region's wine history, the 1855 classification. The 1855 classification in Bordeaux is like a constitution, a reference text that still sets the rules nearly 170 years later, that has remained almost unchanged for over a century, and that still fuels the discussions and debates about border fine wines and the very concept of classification nowadays. In fact, the notion of classification, so closely associated with Bordeaux vineyards, in other regions there are also Grand Cru's, but they are not classified, this notion only exists because of the 1855 classification and that one-time hierarchy established by brokers in the mid-19th century seems today set in the stone of the Medoc and Sauton chateaus like the Ten Commandments. But at the beginning, no one would have thought that the 1855 classification would become the cornerstone of Bordeaux. But as always, history likes to go off script. The document at the origin of the development of viticulture in the Medoc is not the 1855 classification, but an edict signed by King of France Henry IV in 1599 to drain the Kingsdom marshes. At the end of the 16th century, a sizable part of the French territory is still covered in wetlands, unsuitable for living or farming, that spread a number of diseases that the embryonic medicine at the time cannot cure. And the authorities decide to drain these swamps and reclaim the land for the population. That is why, in the spring of 1599, the king signed the edict that explains the will of the sovereign. There are many marshes, swamps and flooded areas that are almost useless and make for a large portion of uninhabited land in the realm. They inconvenience the populations by their vapors and fumes and render difficult the crossing of regions such as the Poitou, Bordeaux, or Brittany. Back then, the know-how to drain such areas is already in the Netherlands, which, as the name suggests, have a large portion of their territory exposed to floods and located below the sea level. The Dutch have perfected the craft of draining wetlands, and the king calls on engineers Humphrey Bradley from the Duchy of Brabant to launch these works that will last for decades across the whole country, including in the Medoc. The Medoc Peninsula is an 80-kilometer-long isocellus triangle located between the Gironde and the Atlantic Ocean, stretching north to the Pointe de Grave, which marks the estuary's entrance, guarded by the majestic site of the Cordouan Lighthouse. Medoc owes its name to the Meduli, the name of the tribe who lived there from the end of the Roman Empire and to the Latin expression medio aquae, which translates in, in between waters. In the 17th century, the lands start to be drained and become suitable for agriculture and cattle farming, but mostly in the heart of the peninsula. In those days, there is no vine growing in the area, and if some texts refer to a few vine stalks here and there, there aren't yet any actual vineyards. 
on the Atlantic coastline, the very fine and homogeneous sands retain plenty of water and prevent the nitrification process in the soil. As a result, the humus remains on the surface, hence the dark color of these soils where vine barely grows. As for the banks of the Gironde, they consist of gravely outcrops, covered by a layer of pebbles carried along by the river from the Pyrenees for thousands of years to form some kind of reliefs in an otherwise rather flat land. Here, there are no hills. The highest point is at only 43 meter elevation in Lestrac Medoc. And, apart from the sand dunes on the coast, the Medoc is an almost flat peninsula. Almost, but not completely flat. And the Gunsian gravels that can be found along the river from Margot to Saint-Estef have piled up in formidable quantities to form outcrops and the layer of pebbles at Chateau Lafitte is 27 meters deep. On these seemingly inhospitable lands, the first vineyards appear under the reign of Louis XIV, the Sun King, thanks to the first Marquis of Ségur, who reigned for over 40 years over the domains of Lafitte and Latour before buying the Calon estate in Saint-Estèphe that still bears his name. In those days, the wines made in Pessac at an estate founded by Jean de Pontac in 1525 have already reached a great popularity in London where they are served exclusively at the Pontac's Head Tavern under the name of O'Brien, to distinguished guests such as Jonathan Swift or Daniel Defoe. Witnessing this success and realizing the similarities between the terroir of Aubryon and that of his Poyac estates, the Marquis starts planting vineyards that will earn him the nickname of Prince of the Vines. The quality of the wines from Aubryon, as well as those from Lafitte, Latour or Margot, is already recognized in the 18th century at the French court, but also in foreign markets and especially in Great Britain. Future American President Thomas Jefferson will make no mistake placing them atop his own classification established during his stay in Bordeaux in 1787. A first list that will be reused later by the likes of André Julien, Alexander Henderson and Cyrus Redding as a draft for a new ranking requested for the 1855 Universal Exhibition. The first Universal Exhibition took place in London from May the 1st to October the 15th, 1851, and proved to be a phenomenal success, with over 6 million visitors, which represents about one-fourth of the total population of Great Britain at that time. In the following years, the new Emperor of France, Napoleon III, the nephew of Napoleon Bonaparte, decides in a decree dated March 8th, 1853, to host the next Universal Exhibition in Paris in 1855 to present products of the country's agriculture, industry and arts. For this major event, the Emperor thinks big and he decides to build near the Champs-Élysées the Palace of the Industry, a massive 200-meter-long building that will be demolished in 1896 to make way for the Grand Palais and the Petit Palais still standing today. To plan and organize the exhibition, the emperor calls upon his cousin, the prince Napoleon Jérôme Bonaparte, to preside the imperial commission at the head of all the local committees in charge of selecting the products to be featured. In terms of wines, the first regions to agree 
are Champagne and Burgundy. And, ironically, they are the ones inviting their Bordeaux counterparts to join and present their wines as well. On November 28, 1854, the Gironde Committee contacts former Bordeaux mayor and president of the Trade Chamber, Louise Dufour du Berger, to see if local producers would be willing to present their wines. The Chamber accepts, but wants to make sure that only the best wines will be featured and shown to the Emperor and the millions of visitors. So the board decides to call upon the special men, the wine brokers of the Bordeaux Trade Exchange, who've been tasting, ranking and selling these wines for over 50 years now and seem to be the most qualified to establish an objective ranking. On April the 5th, 1855, the Trade Chamber writes to the syndicate of brokers to ask for, I quote, the exact and complete list of all the classified red wines of the department, precising which of the five growths they belong to and which villages they are located in. When one looks at the 1855 classification nowadays, considering the quality of the wines, the fame of the chateaus, and the price of the classified growth, it's easy to see it as simply the obvious acknowledgement of a greatness and prosperity already well established back then, or soon to be achieved. However, this would be ignoring the fact that Bordeaux vineyards are in a deep crisis in the middle of the 19th century. In 1853, a new fungus has appeared in the area, powdery mildew. This disease, that Lafitte's Emile Goudal calls a plague without remedy, will lead to the collapse of border production for several years, with volumes down to only a third of the previous decade's average. And it's only in 1857 that growers will discover that spraying sulfur on the vines can prevent the development of the fungus. So, it is a region in distress that receives the chamber's demand on April 1855. It's not the first time that a classification is made in a wine region, and there are precedents in the 14th century in Jurançon, in the city of Würzburg in Germany in 1644, as well as in Tokai in Hungary in 1700. But it took time for the different authorities to come up with all these rankings, and time is a luxury border brokers don't have. The Trade Chamber's mail is sent on April the 5th, when the Universal Exhibition's grand opening is on May 15th, and coming up with a full classification under such short notice may seem like an impossible task. Nowadays, I cannot imagine how long such a process would take. As a comparison, Alsace has been working on a new classification for 10 years now, and the latest Saint-Emilion rankings took years to be finalized and years more to be confirmed by the authorities after lengthy trials. So do you know how long it took the brokers to complete such an overwhelming and sensitive task? To come up with a list that would eventually make Bordeaux's history and destiny? Do you want to venture a guess? No? The answer is three days. It took them only three days to send on April the 8th the list back to the Trade Chamber that will publish it on April 18th, 1855. A classification 
that comprises two lists. A first one of 57 chateaus for red wines and another one of 21 names for sweet white wines ranked as follows. For the reds, 4 first growth, 12 second growth, 14 third growth, 11 fourth growth and 16 fifth growth. And for the whites, 1 superior first growth, 9 first growth and 11 second growth. So how did the brokers manage to make the list in only three days? Well, the answer is very straightforward. They simply rank the wines according to their price list at the time. As I mentioned before, in 1855, Bordeaux brokers have already been buying and selling wines for over half a century, so they taste them regularly. And while they can make mistakes about a vintage or another, the fame of the chateaus and the price of the wines already have a track record dozens of vintages long. As a result, when they come up with the list in 1855, it is hardly debated and presented as is at the Universal Exhibition. The only complaint comes from Chateau Lafitte about the fact that the Trade Chamber is considering presenting the wine using only the name of the village and not the name of the producer as well. So, they write to Prince Bonaparte, who agrees to let Chateau label their own wines. Six bottles of each wine are sent to Paris, but only to be exhibited and not tasted by the public, only by a panel of judges. In the end, the exhibition is a massive success, with over 5 million visitors, and the classification that was designed as a one-off list reflecting the Bordeaux picture that year will become history as the cornerstone of Bordeaux fine wines. When the brokers designed their list in the spring of 1855, it is clear for them that this classification is but a one-off picture of the Medoc and Sauton vineyard, with the addition of Aubryon already considered top-notch back then. For them, the development of the industry and improvements made in each chateau will impact the list that will have to change and evolve over time, as evidenced by the first modification made in September 1855 as the Universal Exhibition is still ongoing. The owners of Chateau Cantemerle write to the syndicate to ask for their properties to be included. Back then, the chateau was selling most of its wine direct on export markets, so it was little known on the Place de Bordeaux. And the brokers accept adding a 58th chateau to the list. Little did they know that no other addition will ever be made and that the 1855 classification, now set in stone, will only be amended once in 1973, more than a century later. Over time, it becomes clear that no one really wants to challenge a hierarchy everybody has vouched for, and at the same time, chateau owners realize that the list has created an elite in the Bordeaux wine industry, and that the classification is a formidably powerful marketing tool to grow their sales. As a result, they become very protective, and to this day, no owner, to my knowledge, would agree to modifying the 1855 classification. The classification covers the chateaus of the Medoc and the Sauton area. In Sauton, there are only two appellations nowadays included in the classification, Sauternes and Barsac. In the Medoc, there are five. 
Margot, Saint-Julien, Poyac, Saint-Estephe and Omedoc Appellations. I spoke earlier of 57 chateaux for red wine, 58 including Cantemel, and 21 chateaux for white wines. But acute connoisseurs of Bordeaux fine wines know that there are today 61 properties for reds and 27 for whites. So let me explain how the list got bigger without adding anyone. It is due to changes of ownership, for only two estates have remained in the hands of the same family since 1855. For red wines, there are now five first growths, with the promotion of Mouton Rothschild in 1973, and we'll get back to that. Then, there were 12 second growths in 1855, and there are now 14. If we need to subtract Mouton, we also must consider the divisions of the Léoville and Pichon estates. So, 12 plus 3 minus 1 equals 14. There are still 14 third growths, but Château du Bignon has disappeared, and the vineyards have been shared over time between Malesco Saint-Exupéry, Margaux, and Durfort Vivens. On the other hand, Boyd has been divided into Boyd Cantenac and Cantenac Brown. So, still 14. The fourth growth have lost one of their own, with the absorption of Pouget-Lassalle by Château Pouget, so down to 10. But the fifth growth are now 18 instead of 16, thanks to the addition of Cantemel and the split in two of Château Bataille. For white wines, nothing has changed for the famous Château d'Iquem, an iconic property in the world of wine. A wine of legendary complexity and depth, a wine of dreams and poetry, liquid light in the words of Arthur Frederick Dahl, and 150 years later, Ikem still helms the whole 1855 classification as the only wine ranked superior first growth. The first growth are now 9 instead of 11, with the partitions of Chateau Peragate and Rabot. And the second growth went from 11 to 15 due to the divisions of Chateau Doisy, Lamotte, Romer and Brustenerac. Only one property has disappeared, Chateau Peixoteau, absorbed by Chateau Rabot in 1872. So, overall, 27 Sauternes and Barsac property nowadays. In 150 years of history, the classification has only been modified twice. Once in 1855 with the addition of Cantemel, and a second time in 1973 with the promotion of Mouton Rothschild as a first growth by a decree signed by future president of the French Republic, Jacques Chirac. For Baron Philippe de Rothschild, this means the end of a lifelong battle to earn his place amongst the elite of Bordeaux wine estates. But it's not the first revolution for this visionary. In 1924, he is only 22 years old when he decides to take on the negotiations and bottle all the wines at the chateau instead of selling them in barriques as it was the norm back then. In those days, negotiants and overseas merchants buy in bulk to bottle the wines themselves, which often leads to frauds and wines being diluted or tampered with. To mark the occasion, the Baron asks artist Jean Carlu to design a label that will become iconic. After the war, the Baron decides that the top banner of the Mouton label will be given to a single artist every vintage to feature an art piece, 
inspired by the famous Poyak Chateau. Brack, Kandinsky, Dali, Miro, Chagall, Warhol, Soulage, all the 20th century's greatest artists will showcase their talent for Mouton. In 1962, the chateau will open a museum of art and wine inside Mouton, and in 1973, after years of lobbying, Mouton is finally inducted in Bordeaux's wine elite. Following the disappointment of not being ranked amongst the first growth in 1855, the estate motto was I cannot be first, I refuse to be second, I am Mouton. After the upgrade, the Baron changed the catchphrase into Now I'm first, used to be second, Mouton doesn't change. Two changes in 150 years for the classification. The resistance to change and rigid nature of the list has always been a topic of debate, and critics, alongside wine lovers, have long been playing the guessing game of what changes could, would or should be made to it. This fifth growth ought to be a second, or this third growth only deserves to be fourth or fifth. Yet, in spite of all the debates around it, don't expect the classification to be modified anytime soon, as none of the estate listed wants to touch it, and everyone agrees that it would be opening Pandora's box once more. In fact, many Bordeaux chateaus recently stood against the submission of the 1855 classification to become part of the UNESCO World Heritage List. They were too concerned that it might lead to a revision of the sacred document. Besides, and quite fortunately I might add, the quality and consistency of the best chateaus have long taken precedence over the ranking in the hierarchy. And while the first growth remain in a world of their own, the other chateaus position themselves according to the market's demand. In fact, some fifth growth are more expensive than some seconds, and many estates don't even bother mentioning their rank in the classification on the label, including some of the top ones. Whether it's because they don't feel the need for it because of their already established reputation or because they prefer to put their own brand forward, this shows that being listed is today more important than the ranking itself. Furthermore, for classified growth as well as for non-listed properties, the classification is a great motivation to improve, especially in the Medoc. The Grave have had their own classification since 1953. The best chateaus outside of the list thrive to demonstrate that they can outperform the crew classes. And in practice, chateaux such as Omar Buzet, Félan Ségur, or Socian de Malais sell for equal or even higher prices than some classified growth. And for the listed properties, this pushes them to stay on top, for their pride wouldn't allow their wines to sell cheaper than some non-classified estates. Also, critics often point out the fact that the plantings in Bordeaux are quite different now compared to the mid-19th century, and that, as a result, the hierarchy that was valid in 1855 may not be accurate anymore because the blend of varieties has changed. While this point is a particularly interesting one, especially considering the influence of climate change today and the new ruling allowing seven new cultivars for the production of Bordeaux AOC, one could argue that it is not the grapes that are classified, 
but the quality output of a given terroir expressed by a blend decided by the vintner. Is it more important that Chateau Palmer's blend is half Merlot in the middle of Cabernet Sauvignon country, or the fact that Palmer is a great wine and truthful expression of Margot's finesse? Besides, it is fairly certain that the blend of most chateaux had already changed in 1855 compared to Thomas Jefferson's visit in 1787. So, things change over time, and so do blends. I understand the underlying truth that a top terroir for Carmenere may not be necessarily a top terroir for Cabernet Sauvignon. But I have the feeling that any negotiation or collector making his own classification today would find some discrepancies, but end up to the conclusion, but end up with the conclusion that 19th century brokers did a pretty good job overall. The third major criticism against 1855, and the hardest one to dismiss in my opinion, is the fact that the estates are classified rather than terroirs, and that some vineyards within the same AOC have changed hands and are now part of different chateaus. I find this point to be valid, and we need to bear in mind that, indeed, the 1855 list is not a ranking of the vineyard plots in each village. But on the other hand, it overlooks the fact that even within a chateau, which boundaries haven't changed, the blend has evolved, especially since the development of second and then third wines. Paul Pontalier once explained to me that some plots making the Grand Vin today were not included in the past and that, on the other hand, some vineyards which used to make the cut now produce Pavillon Rouge. Same as for the blend, these are witness decisions, driven by so many variables. In the end, each producer tries to make the best possible wine expressive of its terroir and worthy of its growth in the classification, and it's then up to the market to agree or not whether these choices were right. And to those out there thinking that top chateaus are untouchable because of their fame and that a first growth status is like a magic firewall against any form of criticism, I would remind them that if it hadn't been for an unknown Greek entrepreneur who stepped up as the sole potential buyer back then, Chateau Margot would have been dismantled and sold in separate lots in 1977. Criticizing the 1855 classification is every bottle lover's favorite sport. Firstly, because it forces us, it allows us, it invites us to retaste regularly these wines. But secondly, because it happens to be a great memory exercise. Just like remembering the names of all 50 states of the US in 6 minutes or less. And that simple mind game, saved from insanity, a man confronted to one of the worst situations imaginable. In 1985, in the midst of the Lebanese civil war, journalist and writer Jean-Paul Kaufman is kidnapped in Beirut with his colleague Michel Seurat. During his imprisonment, his wife, alongside many friends, will fight to keep his memory alive and there are messages every night on TV opening the news. The horrendous conditions of captivity and lack of medical treatment caused the death of Michel Seurat in 1986, leaving Kaufman alone to despair in his cell. But he finds a trick to keep his mind occupied. As a border lover, 
Kaufman starts reciting to himself the 1855 classification, and that will greatly help him to get through his detention. Here is what Kaufman himself wrote about this period of his life. By the end of 1986, I couldn't quite recall all of the fourth growth, typically forgetting Pouget and Market Term, even though they are fine properties. My memory was struggling. A few weeks later, I couldn't name all the fifth growth anymore, and my jailers had taken away my pen. Not being able to remember the classification made me sad. Was I becoming uncivilized? Was I becoming a dunce? Jean-Paul Kaufman will eventually be freed on May 4th, 1988, after 1,078 days of captivity. But a long time will pass before he could be able to enjoy a glass of wine again. For this well-known border lover, the city mayor Jacques Chabandelmas had organized a ceremony in 1985 where every shadow owner donated a bottle of wine for the seller he could enjoy as soon as he would be released. Back then, nobody knew it would be years before he could make it back. Years later, after having received and enjoyed the bottles, Jean-Paul Kaufman commented with a good bit of irony, I got kidnapped at the right time. We were in 1985, so I got bottles of 82. It wasn't so bad. I hope you enjoyed this little story about the 1855 classification of border whites. There would be so much more to tell you about the different appellations and chateaus, both the Grand Cruz and the many petit chateaux that are the beating heart of Bordeaux, let alone Saint-Emilion or Pomeroy that weren't included in 1855. This will be for another day. And in the meantime, I will be back next week for the last episode of the first season. Until then, feel free to share the podcast around you if you've enjoyed it, and please leave me a comment on this story or the previous ones. I'll talk to you next week for another episode of Wine Stories. Thank you.